about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us tonight. Um, And we're on page two of the Pew Bibles. Uh, And as the screen says, we're looking at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through to verse 25. So I'll give you a minute to find that and then we'll start. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man, sorry, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, probably solved my 
microphone issues. There's a sermon outline <coughs> on the, uh, the inside next to the Bible reading, uh, if, if, if that's useful to you. Um, as Maddie said before, we're, we're in week three of a series looking at just the first four chapters of Genesis. Uh, so this week we get to chapter two, which is just read. Um, let's pray again as we come to God's word. <coughs> Our Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would lighten the way for us this evening, for we live in dark places. Amen. Uh, One of the distinctive projects of our age is the project known as transhumanism, uh, sometimes called post-humanism as well. Um, The aim of this project is to use current and emerging technologies, things like uh, genetic engineering, um, cryonics, AI, nanotechnology, um, CRISPR, things like that, uh, to augment human capabilities and improve the human condition. In its most radical forms, this project looks pretty wild to most people. Uh, It aims for what one group calls Humanity 2.0, which means not much less than getting to the point where you don't have to die. Uh, Mark O'Connell sums it up like this. I don't think he's a transhumanist. He's just writing about it. He says, It is their belief that we can and should eradicate, means get rid of ageing as a cause of death, that we can and should use technology to augment our bodies and minds that we can and should merge with machines, remaking ourselves finally in the image, notice that phrase, of our own higher ideals. Pretty science fiction. Um, Of course, a lot of the technology needed for indefinite life extension doesn't actually exist yet. Uh, That's why some folk pay a lot to freeze their bodies until the tech does exist. Uh, such as through the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. I understand that in those big vats are corpses. Well, I don't know what you call them. They're not dead, they're just frozen. That's, that's pretty kind of extreme, okay? But the thing is, we're actually already very much in the thick <clears throat> of decisions that are a little bit transhuman. Drugs developed to help the sick or injured, are already used to enhance concentration and performance. Lots of medical interventions have crossed the line already from therapy to enhancement, or really just about enacting the choices that people have and want to make. We're approaching the point where artificial artificial limbs may be more effective in certain respects. Is it a problem? I mean, why shouldn't I replace my lower legs with carbon fibre blades if I want to run faster? Why shouldn't we insert electronics into our brains? Is that is that, that different from using Siri to manage my calendar? Uh, or you know, help me navigate? Or is it that different to, to integrating Alexa into my home? or putting on a pair of Apple Vision glasses. Some of us are probably already living, maybe humanity 1.6, 
I think I'm probably back at 1.3, to be honest. But some of you may be kind of up there, 1.6, 1.7. You've got a lot of kind of tech integration. It's pretty impressive. Why shouldn't we try to transcend our human limits? Why shouldn't we aim for humanity 2.0? You know, we're, we're going to have no way to answer these kinds of questions without a clearer understanding of what it means to be a human being what the human condition is, and why it is. And so I want to invite you to let these questions lead us back this evening to Genesis chapter 2, because it is aiming to teach us these things. At the end of last week, we reached God's creation of humankind in his image. In Genesis chapter 2, we zoom in on this question with a second account of God's creation of humanity. Now, it's a different account. You'll notice that things happen in a different order to Genesis chapter 1. It's not a problem. I think it's just another indication that, as I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, these chapters are not intended to be taken literally as a kind of scientific account of how it all happened, but more as a kind of poetic history telling us the truth about human origins, but in a highly stylized ways. Now, that raises all sorts of questions about human origins, of course, and that's a good thing and, you know, good, good to ask those questions. But in the first place, what we need to do is read these texts with an eye on what they're trying to teach us. And the purpose of Genesis 2 is to teach us about the human condition, about the kind of life human beings have been given to live, and why. So let's look at what it says. Now, this is a rich text, Genesis 2, and uh, can I just say at the beginning, there is, there is more to talk about than I can talk about in one sermon. But what I want to do is just point out five aspects of the human condition. They're there on your outline uh, that I think this text shows us. There's quite a pleasing B-based alliteration uh, through these five that I'm pretty happy with, uh, but it doesn't have any significance at all. <clears throat> okay, first, then, embedded. Human beings are embedded. Embedded in this real physical world, the earth. The Lord God formed a man, it's a, it says in verse 7. I'll refer to the text at different times. <clears throat> formed a man from the dust of the ground. From the dust of the ground, we are in a very real sense earthlings, earthmen, and earthwomen. We are not spacemen, heavenly creatures descended from space and destined to return there. That's what Scientology thinks we are, once you get to be a level seven thetan or whatever, which what Tom Cruise is. You discover that we're, we're spacemen, apparently. We're not spacemen. This text says we're from... We're from here, and we belong here. As the text continues, we see that human beings are made to be at home in this world. In verse 15, the Lord takes the man and puts him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. That is a work that is responsive, not creative fundamentally. The man is working with and for something that's already there. The shape of his work is determined by the finite limits of this place he's been given to live in. 
God gives him the trees of the garden to eat from and other creatures of the ground, also from the dust, around him. There is just this profound sense that the earth with its plants and animals, they are the fitting home for the man who is from the dust. You know, there are many, many forms of spirituality, including forms of Christian spirituality that are embarrassed or uncomfortable with the earthliness of human being. Sometimes this attitude creeps into our songs or our theology. We start to talk as if what we ought to want and hope for is to transcend the earthliness of our lives, to escape it to some kind of spiritual plane of existence. But the Bible just doesn't picture things like that. Earthiness, embeddedness, being of the dust, part of this finite planet, that is not, according to the Bible, it's not a product of the fall. It's not a result of things going wrong. It's how it's meant to be. It's how God made it in the beginning. And the future Christians hope for is always an embedded future. We talk about the resurrection of the body. Christians have always believed that. They believed that even in the early centuries of the Christian faith when it was really hard to believe that. They insisted on the resurrection of the body. And the thing is, bodies need somewhere to stand. The earth. And that's why the Bible pictures again and again a new heaven's and a new earth. The hope to transcend, to escape the earthiness of human existence is simply a hope not to be human. Because to be human is to be embedded in and bound up with this planet, this earth. That's the first point. Second point is borrowed breath. In the second place, The text shows us that we live by what we might call borrowed breath. A beautiful artwork. I obviously didn't do it. I can't can't remember the name of the artist, but uh, just wanted to make sure you knew I couldn't do that. Um, Human beings are not naturally immortal. We are given life by the breath of God. Look again at verse 7, if you didn't notice it when we read it. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I pointed out last week that that last term, living being in Hebrew, nefesh hayah, is also used of the animals, both in verse 19 of our chapter and in chapter 1. And also, both human beings and animals are said to have the breath of life. So what this means is is that this description is not a picture of the first man being given something special called an immortal soul. No, it's a description of the man being brought to life by the breath of God. The spirit of God. Spirit and breath can be the same word in Hebrew, although the word used for breath here is different. What does that mean? Well, the idea is actually a really important one in the Bible. And one of the clearest expressions of it is in Psalm 104. It says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. It's talking to God. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created. 
and renew the face of the ground. And you renew the face of the ground. You know, when it says all creatures there, it means us too. Human beings are dust living on borrowed breath. If you and I are still at church when you die, which I hope won't be true of any of you, but, you know, it might, um, and I do your funeral, uh, I will say these words, which I say at every funeral, we here commit the body of our dear brother or sister, N, name, to the ground or to be cremated, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You see, we live by the breath of God, we human beings. We are sustained in existence every moment only by his spirit. That's the human condition. Can you see, again, what a debt of gratitude we owe you and I to God, our creator, in whom we live and breathe and have our being? And can you see also what an arrogance it is to live as if we have our life in our own hands, as if we are the ones with the power and right to sustain or to take our lives. In the third place, the text shows us that the human condition is one of what I've called bounded freedom. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that humans were given real freedom and with it, real authority and power by being given a boundary, a limit. Did you notice that when the Lord God puts the man in the garden, what he tells him first is that he is free? Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you'll certainly die. The man is free to eat with one specific limit. He must not eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks, we'll see that the first thing the serpent who represents the forces of evil, the devil, will do, the first thing he'll do is to distort this point. He comes along and he asks whether God really said that Adam and Eve must not eat from any tree in the garden. And the reason the serpent distorts this point is that the purpose of God's <coughs> prohibition, the purpose of this limit he gives, is actually to give the man freedom. Because you see, not all limits hinder freedom. Some of them actually enable it. I've illustrated this before by talking about games. The rules of soccer, like you're not allowed to pick up the ball with your hands, uh, let me tell you, they feel like they hinder freedom to a four-year-old. Have you ever tried to play soccer or teach a, a, a four-year-old to play soccer? I have a few times. Um, and what, they, what happens is you say, you can't pick up the ball with your hands, and they go, pick it up. You know, because it, it feels like a limit. I want to pick it up with my hands, right? But what you realize is that as soon as you pick the ball up, actually you've just lost freedom because you're no longer able to play soccer. You've just lost the freedom to do that good thing. 
And you know, that's actually the character of many aspects of human life. To really do anything concrete, you have to have limits, constraints. To seek to know everything is to know nothing in particular. The prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually enables human freedom because it enables them to experience eating from the other trees as God's gift and as an act of obedience. That boundary gives them authority and the freedom to live as responsible beings. Okay, what's the significance of all that? It's, it's very kind of theoretical. Well, a lot, actually, but for now, I just think all we can do is to notice the basic point that for human beings, not all constraints, not all limits are forms of unfreedom. Some limits are like that. Some restrictions are unjust and inhibiting, absolutely, but that's not true of all of them. Actually, human freedom, the living of our lives responsibly, it's made possible by all sorts of limits. The finite nature of the earth, the particular nature of our bodies, and the limits of what is right and wrong. God's commandments, they don't always feel like gifts to make us free. They often feel like the rules of a game feel like to a child who doesn't understand them properly. They feel like impositions, but they're not. They're the form of our freedom. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, but there's a story in the gospel where Jesus says to a paralyzed man, he says, stand up, take your mat and walk. And he does. But you know, that is a commandment. <laughs> it actually imposes upon him a restriction. It, it imposes upon him a course of action that he must obey. But it's also sheer freedom, isn't it? The freedom to do what he has never been able to do. And that, friends, that is what God's commandments are. Though we can't always see them like that. The psalm says, I will walk about in freedom because I have sought out your precepts. In the fourth place, the human condition is that we are better together. It is not good, God says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Um, those words are a shock after chapter 1. Because in chapter 1 we hear, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, and now suddenly something is not good. And what is not good is that the man is on his own, alone. And so the Lord declares his intention to make for the man a helper suitable for him. Uh, there's, a lot to, uh, there's a lot of debate about that phrase, a helper suitable for him, but in my view, it's pretty unnecessary. That phrase can also be translated a fitting partner or a helper who matches him. And I, I think there's a very clear sense of equality in this phrase. Not identity, not sameness. The man doesn't need and he isn't given just a clone, a duplicate, another one of himself. He's given someone who matches him, someone equal to be a partner. <clears throat> the next scene, if, you, if you're looking at the text, it produces a kind of pause to make us feel 
Adam's isolation as the animals are brought to the man and named, and yet no suitable helper was found for Adam. And so the woman is finally made from the man's side, and they are united. In the passage, the problem of the man's being alone or on his own (coughs) is resolved through the creation of the woman. And we're then told in verse 24, if you're looking at it, that marriage arises because of this fact. It's important to be clear, though, on the distinction between the reality of male and female and the introduction of marriage. This passage is very important for Christian understandings of marriage and sex. And for this reason, we're going to pause over this passage again next week to think about those issues. And nobody came to church. No, you should come. It will be interesting. But here, what I want to emphasize is that the solution to the man's being on his own is not primarily marriage, but woman. And that's important to make that distinction, because otherwise you end up feeling like this text is just an argument for marriage, and it's kind of saying that without marriage, we're all kind of incomplete. Now, people do sometimes say that, sometimes carelessly, sometimes deliberately, but that is just an idea that it's almost impossible to square with the rest of the Bible, because it's really clear that it's possible to be fully and beautifully human as an unmarried single person. The most obvious Reason is also the most important one. Jesus, the only human life that was perfect, was the life of a single man. That's a bit awkward if what we're being told here is that the man was incomplete until he was married. But Genesis is not actually saying that. The not goodness of the man's being alone is not the lack of a romantic relationship, it's the lack of a helper. The issue is not primarily that he feels lonely, but that he is unable to fulfill his calling on his own. I don't mean to minimize the difficulty of feeling lonely. It's super important. But the main issue here is is his need for for a helper to fulfill his calling. And in Genesis chapter 2, this calling is about working and taking care of the garden. So what that means is that the not-goodness of the man's being alone is not mainly about having a romantic partner or being sexually fulfilled. It is about the need we have for help and community. Human beings are not designed to do this human thing on our own. We are made to be and work with and alongside one another. We are social beings. I think that actually this passage leads us much more clearly to the the need for friendships and all kinds of social relationships. Human beings need and make friends. And we live as those who help each other. Uh, The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, famously wrote, do you know this quote? He, He said, hell is other people. What a jerk. Because to to the extent that we actually feel like that, our lives will be a nightmare. They will be hell. Because to be human is to need others. 
And especially, I think this text presses on us, we need those others who are other in the unique way of being the other sex. Men need women, and women need men. And I stress, again, I don't mean sexually. Sexuality is, of course, an important aspect of life, and we mustn't underestimate it, and we won't. But that's not all there is to Adam's delight in Eve here. It is simply also a delight in an other who is, who is the same as him and yet not like him. <clears throat> there are all sorts of things we could talk about here. I hope to send uh, a little article I found helpful out during the week in the newsletter. And I hope we will be able to keep talking about this. But for now, can we just hear that this is our human condition? To be those who are designed to delight in the presence and help of others especially those others of the opposite sex. And, and as soon as you start to think about it, you realise how many important relationships that throws into perspective. Mothers, fathers, cousins, nephews, friends, colleagues. Finally, though, to be human is to be embodied. Can we just note the bodiliness we see here? The Lord breathes into his nostrils. And especially in the final section where the man is put into a deep sleep, a coma basically, and a rib is removed <clears throat> and the place is closed up with flesh. And then when Adam meets Eve, what does he say? He doesn't say, ah, a mind to match my own. He doesn't say, finally, another intellect with which to discourse. No, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Bone and flesh. That's what we human beings are. And bone and flesh as man and woman who can become one flesh in sex and as a new family. All through history, there have been people and religions <clears throat> that have basically, and philosophies, that have basically felt that the body is bad. The business of Things like digestion and aging and sexual reproduction, that's a bit embarrassing and probably kind of shameful. In our day, there is often a, dif a different spin on this. We are told and we often kind of subtly endorse the idea that it's actually only some bodies that are okay. And we sculpt and polish some of us and hide and display our bodies accordingly. And we live with undercurrents of frustration and distress that our bodies are not how we wish they were. And sometimes this becomes utterly destructive for people. You know, underneath all this, I think, is, is simply the fact that our bodies are the ultimate expression of the fact that our existence is limited. Our freedom is bounded. We are not gods. We're not angels. We're creatures. The life I have is only this life in this body, which is shorter or fatter than I would have liked. I only have these teeth, these eyes, this liver. I only have this male body or this female body or this body that is broken and messed up and difficult in this way. Listen again, though, to Adam's words. <clears throat> this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
Do you hear in those words the preciousness of Adam's body to himself and his contentment with it and his acceptance of it? I hear a sense of wonder and joy still young that this flesh and bones has been given to him as the form of his life. And did you notice there's no hint in Genesis that it was the particular qualities of Adam's body that was good. No mention of his appearance or strength or of Eve's beauty, or height, or breast size, or whatever. We have a choice. We can welcome our bodies as the condition of our lives, accepting their limits as the form within which our freedom is found. Or we can despise them and resent them. It's exactly the same dynamic as is there with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why, though, why should we? I mean, why should we welcome these limits? Even if we accept that all these things are the human condition, why should we respect these bounds on our freedom? After all, we aren't in the garden anymore. Many of these things don't feel very good now, even if they did back then. So why not, instead, try to rise above them to transcend the embedded embodied, dependent character of our existence and become, well, who knows? I think the answer lies in the part of the text we haven't looked at, the weird bit where it talks about the Garden of Eden and the four rivers. Did you notice that when we read? Those four rivers, um, although we don't really know what two of them are, they do seem to locate the garden in the real world, probably somewhere near the tip of the Persian Gulf. But the garden also has a rich symbolic significance. And it's this I want to notice now. You see, in all sorts of ways, the tabernacle and temple of Israel were modelled on the garden. Now, I might have just got, you, you, you might have just totally lost me. What am I talking about? In the Old Testament, it tells the story of ancient Israel, and ancient Israel are given <clears throat> two places, basically, where God says he will meet with them. The first is a big tent called the tabernacle, and the second is a a huge temple. And they're the places that God says he will meet with them, and they're super important in the Old Testament. And the really interesting thing is they're both modelled on the Garden of Eden. They both face east, like the garden. They're both guarded by cherubim, like the garden. They're filled with imagery of flowers and pomegranates and palm trees. Have a look at the temple in 1 Kings 6 if you're interested. One of the key items in both of them, the lampstand or the menorah, it's designed to look like the tree of life. Have a read of the description in Exodus 27. The temple and the tabernacle are filled with gold and precious stones, including the ones mentioned here in verse 12. And the priests of the tabernacle and temple are called to, what's their job? To work and to take care of the tabernacle and the temple, just like Adam is called in verse 15. And when the prophet Ezekiel pictures a new perfect temple in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, he pictures it with a river flowing out of it to renew the earth like the garden. Okay, but so what? I mean, that's a lot of interesting Bible facts. But why does it matter? What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that it shows us that what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 
is not just a kind of original position that we're free to forget. No, it is a glimpse of God's eternal purpose. God's work of redemption, which climaxes in Jesus, is patterned on this beginning. His eternal purpose is what we see there in the garden, to be with human beings. We see this again beautifully at the very end of the Bible. We start at the very beginning. At the very end, in the final vision of the book of Revelation, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and it is made of pure gold and precious stones. And then right at the end, John sees this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. <clears throat> the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you see some of the images of Genesis chapter 2? The river flowing out, the tree of life, and human beings finally free to be themselves through the knowledge of God and to reign as they were made to. And do you see what that points us to? It shows us that the human condition is not something to be resented, resisted, transcended, rejected, because it is a condition of unbelievable blessing. To be a human is to be dust. Yes, it is to be embodied, to be limited, to be bounded, and it is also to be called to this. It is to be those who are infinitely blessed. It is, to those who, it is to be those who are the object of God's eternal purpose in Jesus Christ to be with us as his servants, his friends, those who know him and love him. That's what it is to be human as well. Friends, in all sorts of... That's just a an artwork of the holy city. Probably put it in the wrong place in the slideshow. But let me finish just by saying these things. In all sorts of subtle or overt ways, we are being invited today to see our humanity as a stepping stone to something better and to see many aspects of the human condition as burdens we needn't keep carrying. But if we see God's purpose for human beings, we will know not to be tempted by that siren song. You know, at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer twice points out that God's grace is not given to angels. It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come, the writer says, but human beings. Later he says again, surely it is not angels he helps, but, the child, but, but Abraham's descendants. In some ways, it would be great to be an angel, wouldn't it? to be free of the constraints of the body, of sexuality, of mortality, of limits. In a way, that's what the transhumanist movement is seeking, to be angels. 
But oh, what we lose. What we lose. What we lose is to be the objects of God's wonderful, gracious purpose that we see in the garden and that we see at the end and that he has accomplished in Jesus. To be a human being is hard sometimes, but it is also to be called to unimaginable glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your grace to us, your purpose to bless us, and for making it possible and setting it before us in Jesus Christ. Help us to live in the freedom that he has carved open for us. In his name we pray. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.